0: So we're in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. So let me read uh, 13 to 17. And uh, and then we'll look into it. So, so Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is... The adherents of the law, who are to be the for if it is the the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace, and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So in the last few weeks we've been looking at at Romans and uh, we've seen that the problem, the bad news, if you like, is uh, that makes the good news necessary is, is that every single man, woman, boy or girl is not righteous before God by ourselves. We're left to ourselves, we are not righteous before God. And as Paul puts it in 3.23, uh, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. Everybody has failed, if you like. Uh, They don't have righteousness. They've given themselves over to unrighteousness. So Paul's conclusion is no one is righteous. No, not one. uh, And that's before the law of God, no one can become righteous. You can't undo things that you've done in the past. You can't. Go back and fix them. We don't have time machines to be able to do that. Uh, You can't uh, can't unfix. You can't fix sins that you've committed. It's done. And it stands against you. But the glory of the gospel is this, that that God has not left mankind uh, alone to face the inevitable sentence that is to be passed on mankind. But rather, what God has done is he has provided uh, a righteousness himself. A righteousness that is fully sufficient. And that righteousness is a free gift coming solely from the goodness and grace of God. And that that righteousness has been obtained for us, if you like, through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, in shedding his blood on the cross. He was fully obedient, fully actively obedient, and passively obedient. he, He obeyed the law in every respect. He suffered and died according to the messianic mission that he was given. He suffered. And he was perfect and blameless. And so he was utterly righteous in himself. And that righteousness by which we, we must be saved, there's no other way to be saved, is to be received uh, not by working for it, but by simply receiving it and resting in it with the open hand of faith and trust. You just receive what God offers to you in Jesus Christ. And so you put your life, your life in the hands of this wonderful saviour, Jesus, who will certainly save you and save me from the terrible consequences and from the controlling power of sin. And that's the only way. There is no other way that the Bible explains to us. Righteousness and salvation are given by grace alone. And it's achieved by Jesus Christ alone. And it's received by us through faith alone. Those three solas, the the three alones. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. Now that's perhaps something that's uh, easily stated, but it's not always so easily received. And uh, and what the Apostle Paul is doing here in chapter 4 is address some of the problems that some of his Jewish uh, readers might have come up with. Um, and this is, this is the way of convincing somebody about something, isn't it? It's how convincing works. Uh, you, you state the truth and then you... you, you Think about the objections that people might raise against the truth you just stated and begin to knock down the objections. And this is what Paul is doing here. Um, He is is laying out the argument and seeking to convince people. And who better to do that than Paul himself? Paul was, uh, of course, was a Jew. He was well-trained in Judaism. And... uh, and therefore, he is familiar with all the objections that uh, Jewish readers, uh, Jewish listeners to this letter uh, would make. And so he addresses them here in chapter 4, and we've seen some of them already. And what he does is he takes those Jews back to Abraham, uh, because of course these, these folks are, are kind of descended genetically from Abraham. But he, he he simply gets them to look at their Bibles. What is, this is his method, you see. What does the Scripture say? Um, that's what he says back in verse 3 of chapter 4. For what does the Scripture say? He gets people to look at their Bibles. And uh, as we were thinking this morning, you know, it's when we look at our Bibles and we hear what God is saying through, through his words, and as it's preached, then God is present and God speaks to us. And... Uh, And we've seen already how Paul brings up Abraham, who is not considered righteous because of his works, and all because of his effort, but because of the faith that he had and the promises that God gave him. And uh, that faith was credited to him as righteousness. So as it were, there was a kind of transaction Kind of takes place that uh, as you believe God and you believe His promises, which are fulfilled in Christ in the Old Testament. You know, if you're an old, an old Testament believer, you believe the promises which point forward to Christ. You believe in all of those things, and that faith in the promises of God is how God, by His Spirit, uh, applies the work of Christ to the believers in the Old Testament, and they believe, and uh, they are able to receive righteousness. And Paul is uh, bringing up Abraham and he addressed, we saw last time, he addressed some who, th- who might have thought that he still had, you know, a Christian still has to be circumcised. Uh, even though faith was important, you say well I still have to be circumcised. And, uh, and Paul has shown that actually when you read the scriptures, Abraham had that faith before he was circumcised. So the faith came in Genesis 15 uh, but circumcision didn't come till Genesis 17, and so faith came first and then circumcision. Uh, so it's not f- circumcision that matters, but it's faith, of course. And so what, what Paul's been doing in chapter 4 is he's been knocking down their resistance uh, to, with, with all this kind of cultural baggage that they have uh, of their adherence to the law. There's one more thing that he deals with here in this chapter, and there is a question, well, what about the rest of the law of Moses? Uh, What are we to do with that? Won't keeping the law of Moses get us everything that was promised in the Old Testament? Keep the Ten Commandments, uh, keep all those laws about sacrifices, um, all those laws that set out the crimes of society, the civic aspects of the law, all those, those three elements of the law. And surely, you know, And you might think, well, if we keep all of these things, then surely people can be saved if we just do all these things. So what does Paul say to that, himself a Jew? What does he say to that? Well, here's the first thing that I summarize in this heading. A religious life founded upon law-keeping renders faith empty. I'll say that again. A religious life founded upon law-keeping renders faith empty. It's important to understand what Paul is, is saying here. Um, he is talking about um, the, uh, the adherence of the law. If you look in, in verse 16, uh, not only to the adherent of the law, or, or verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, and, you know, the, the English actually adds those words, adherence of the law, because it's literally of the law. It's like you're kind of, you know, you, you come from the law somehow, that you're somehow organically connected to the law. And that's maybe how a Jew might have thought of himself. And uh, John Murray, uh, theologian, summarizes it like this. Uh, what he means here uh, by adherence of the law is those who live by the law as the governing, guiding principle of their religion living by the law as a governing guiding principle. And, you know, maybe you're wondering what's what's wrong with that? Why not have the law as a governing guiding principle? Well, you just need to keep listening up then. Because maybe uh, you've got this the wrong way around. There were certainly Jews that lived that way. In fact, it was the thing that Jesus faced time and time again. isn't it? Uh, Pharisees and scribes who constantly nitpicked over the finer points of the law. They were constantly pointing out people's failings and weaknesses. And, uh, and it was you know, minuscule things. Um, and they wanted everyone, you see, to be adhering to the law in all its fine detail because for them, you know, a, a divine inheritance was at stake. We've got to do this. We've got to keep the law as well as we can because there's an inheritance at stake here. If we don't do this, we won't inherit what God has said. But Jesus says to, what does he say to those Pharisees and scribes? You read this amazing chapter in Matthew 23 and he, he, he doesn't pull his punches when it comes to the scribes and Pharisees. You blind guides, blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Uh, they, were, they were swallowing a view of the religious life that was, was and is extremely dangerous. You may, have, uh, you may have swallowed a fly or a gnat. Um, you know, I did the other day and it was unpleasant. Ever tried swallowing a camel? <laughs> it's painful. I haven't tried, but, you know, (laughs) I'm sure it's painful. Um, But, you know, Jesus is kind of joking in a way, but, uh, you know, this is serious business. Um, You know, if someone tries to live their life this way, then they're saying that... They're saying something with extremely serious conclusions. If you build your life upon keeping the law, in other words... Having it as the basis of, and the foundation of all that God offers to you, then you will render your faith null. Do you see there in verse fourteen for if all it's in here if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void, null, null point. Good thing you don't read, you don't watch the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> Nul point. You, no, you don't get anything. Get no benefits if that's the way you live. In the sense that there's, if there's no trust involved, there's no faith involved. Simply the hard work of adhering to the law. If that's true, then the promise that God has made which he has made with no strings attached, is rendered void and null. All the promises of salvation come to nothing if you rest upon this law keeping. In other words, whatever God has promised, such a person comes to God and says, no, it's okay, I'll just do it myself. I'm not going to believe you, but if I do everything that you've told me to do, I'll use the law of Moses. I'll use it to obtain an inheritance that God must give me if I keep these laws. And and so this is what Paul is addressing. And Paul calls him again to consider Abraham. How did he receive all that was promised to him? Well, of course, Abraham didn't have the law. He didn't have it. Uh, It had not been given at this point. So, in a sense, their their argument is totally groundless. If Abraham can have this righteousness without the law, shouldn't the rest of us be able to? You see, you can't talk about doing enough to be acceptable to God and in the same breath talk about your faith in God as somehow helping you. Faith can't help you if you're resting upon your works. It really can't. It can't do anything for you. It's not really faith. And it's amazing how many people believe that when they die and come face to face with God, they think that all they have to do before God, as, as inevitably every single person will do, they will come before God and they think, well, if I just you know, show my list of things that I've done in life, let's just work through them, all the good things I've done in my life, then God, somehow God must accept me. And therefore I deserve heaven. Well Paul is at pains, I think, to show that these Jews have misunderstood their Bibles if that's what they think. That the Bible teaches no such religion because it destroys the role of humble faith and trust in God, who promises blessings to those who trust him. (laughs) Gospel's so simple. It's, so, it's almost too easy to believe. There's a saying that says, if it's too, it seems too good to be true, then it probably is. But it's not true with the gospel. It seems too good to be true because it is true. It's so good. Trust and faith in the promises of God. But here's, the, here's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. The second thing is, the law brings the wrath of God. The law brings the wrath of God. Um, verse 15 for the law brings wrath but where there is no law there is no transgression Um, this is a very serious consequence of having the law isn't it Uh, if you have the law then the wrath of God comes first of all what what does it mean by wrath what does it mean uh, by God's anger And, of course, it's a word that comes up in the Bible to to express God's action against sin. God exercises his wrath against sin. And we have already seen how this comes in a a couple of ways as we've gone through the book of Romans. Uh, If you look back to chapter 1, verse 18, it's a fascinating thing he says here. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what he goes on to then explain in the subsequent verses is is all that that means. That man lives in unrighteousness in all kinds of unpleasant ways. And it works itself out in all kinds of unpleasant ways. You suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the interesting thing about this is, that the very experiencing of all of these sins in society and all of these problems that seem to come up in society all the time because we operate in unrighteousness is itself an expression of the wrath of God upon mankind. See, subsequently, Paul tells us, God gives people over. Uh, verse 24, for example. Therefore, God gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them over. To the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies amongst themselves. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And so on. Uh, God seems to, you know, if human beings want to be able to sin a great deal. He will just let you do it, and that's an expression of the wrath of God. But there's also another place that he speaks about the wrath of God, and that's in verse two, verse five, chapter two, verse five. Uh, because of your hardened, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is going to be a future day of wrath and judgment and so God will come in wrath and he will right all wrongs and justice will be seen to be done in that day now why is it true then if we go back to chapter 4 why is it true then that in chapter 4 Paul says the law brings wrath How, how is that the case well, for a simple reason, that the law makes clear what sin actually is. It doesn't mean that sin wasn't present until the law came, but, but the law makes clear what sin is. And without the law, no one knows when the boundaries are being crossed. That's what he means by uh, uh, where there is no law, there is no transgression, is crossing a boundary, the boundaries of God's law. So if you don't have the law, you don't know when you've crossed the boundaries. God is patient. But everyone has crossed the boundaries because everyone has sinned and fallen short. And so you're utterly misguided if you think that be, uh, and you believe that you can keep the law so that God will give you a blessed inheritance. Because you've sinned. You've crossed the line. We've all crossed the line. You know, and so if you say that, well, I've got the law, and isn't that a great thing? It's a bit like trying to hold a hot potato. I mean, (laughs) how can you hold a hot potato? It's, uh, uh, It's dangerous to hold a hot potato. It's dangerous to have the law. Because with the law comes the wrath of God. And you see, the law, when the law comes, it should break you. It should break you. It should break your heart. Uh, Martin Luther discovered this, the great reformer of the 16th century. He discovered that, he saw that to be righteous himself, he had to live a morally pure life. And he tried very hard to live a morally pure life for many years. Um, The trouble was that the longer he lived it, the more sins and failures he found and the more miserable he got. And actually, the law just broke him until he discovered the righteousness from God. He couldn't find it in himself but he found it from God. And you see, some people need to be brought to the point where they are broken before they can enter into the joy of the Christian life. You need to see your life in the light of the law so that then you can come to Christ and receive righteousness from him. There are some people in churches today who have never been broken, they have never seen the depth of their sin. They've never seen the awfulness of the consequences. And there may even be someone here today who has never been broken by the thought of their own sin. And they may say something like, yeah, well, we're all human. And, uh, you know, we all sin. But There's no sense that I have sinned and it invites the wrath of God against my sin. And it condemns me to hell. But when somebody sees, somebody is broken by the law, as it were, when they discover that they can't ever make headway just by keeping the law, then that person becomes a different kind of person. There's There's a humility about them that takes over. There's a willingness to submit to others. There's a thankfulness to God for the grace that has saved them in spite of themselves. And that's what Paul wants to get to then. The amazing grace of God. So let's, if you examine the law, let's see how it's supposed to break us. But then let it lead you to the grace of God. And this is where he comes to in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now Paul kind of puts it in a surprising way around, maybe you might think. You might want to say that it's it's by grace so that therefore it's come to us through faith. But Paul says it comes to us through faith so that it might be by grace. And without it depending wholly on faith, it could never be a truly gracious promise, could it? Think about it. And we could never know God as a truly gracious God, unless it was completely by faith, through faith. But more importantly, the promise could never be guaranteed if it rested upon you and your works. You could never be sure that what God promised would actually be yours because there would always be that doubt in your mind that you have never quite come up to the standard of the law if if that's what you're resting on. And therefore all your efforts are pointless and wasted. So many people come to church and they're, they're in doubt the whole time because they've never heard the gospel of God's grace by faith. But God has instituted this way. A sure and certain way of delivering to us what he wants his people to have. To offer them out of his grace, not because the objects of his promise are deserving, but precisely because we are undeserving. And to call us simply to believe what he has promised and to trust him. And that's what faith is. That's what faith does. It's merely the open hand. That receives the promised gift. It's the open mouth that receives the promised food. Faith in God's promises. In this way, what is promised can then come to all who have faith. And what is promised is guaranteed, whether you're you're a Jew or a Gentile, doesn't matter your background. see, God is the God who raises the dead. and He calls into existence things that are not. And he is able to do all that he has promised. All the things that have been promised and not yet fulfilled will come true. God always keeps his promises. And so, you and I, we need to trust the Lord today. Trust in his promises, which are yes and amen. In Christ Jesus. Are you trusting Jesus Christ today? Are you trusting the Lord? In all his promises? Have you put your faith in him? Have you as it were put your hands. Your life into his hands. And he will take you. And he will save you. See Jesus is the true seed that was promised to Abraham. And Jesus has come. And he would become the blood sacrifice that would remove the wrath that is due to his people. So that they could then be removed from under the weight of God's wrath. And no amount of personal effort can remove God's wrath from any of us. Only Jesus can do that. And by the grace of God, all of that salvation is guaranteed to all who simply trust in him no matter what your background, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, Hillian or not Silhilian <laughs> wherever you come from, from Solihull, <laughs> wherever you come from, you can have all that is promised in Christ if you will put your trust in him. Are you trusting in him today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of salvation that is ours in him. And Lord, we know there is a place for the law, but it's after we have been saved. It's after we have put faith in Jesus Christ. that We are saved first. And then we can live with true freedom according to your word. So help us to believe in him and trust in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.